here we are again. Welcome to you all. Thanks for uh, joining us. Joining us on a Friday. Um, you know, I'm sure you, you you all had lots of other pressing social engagements. Um, but um, yes, here we are. Um, so the third, the second, the second opportunity to see the third and final in this current little mini series of wonderful, um, wonderful women's history uh, workshops that Rachel has, has diligently and um, meticulously put together um, is exploring um, material that we have in the Norfolk Heritage Centre collections uh, that relate to the women's liberation movement and efforts to um, campaign for freedom from control and violence. Um, this uh, workshop or, or event, just like the others, for those of you who, who may or, or, or may not have attended the previous others, um, is linked to the wonderful Unfinished Business um, Fight for Women's Rights exhibition, which is uh, currently or should be currently at the British, uh, British Library, but has been extended. Um, so hopefully um, further into the new year when things you know, with luck, do start to, to open up and, and start to return to normal. Uh, that will be uh, running extended, I believe, until August, Rachel. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, the end of August. Before I kick off, I'll just introduce myself. My name's Rachel and I am the local studies librarian for Norfolk Library. So that means I look after um, all of our books and historic collections to do with local history. Um, and I often work with Chris at Norfolk Heritage Centre um, and Chris is employed by Norfolk Record Office um, and is sort of our bridge member of staff to link the two organisations. So like Chris said, um, Today's event is part of a series of feminist history events which are linked to um, the British Library's Unfinished Business exhibition, um, which luckily for us is extended till the end of August. So um, I haven't managed to see it yet. So hopefully um, a trip to the British Library will be possible uh, later on in the year. Um, but we are part of something called the Living Knowledge Network, which is a sort of network of libraries um, across the country uh, that link up with the British Library and um, share knowledge and share events. And um, we've linked up with Unfinished Business and created our own online version of the exhibition focusing on local history. Um, and I'll share a link to that at the end and I'll, I'll email you a link to the online exhibition as well. Um, but today's uh, event is, is part of our programme. Um, to do with unfinished business. So today I'm going to highlight some particular items from our collection. Um, the themes of today are really looking at mainly the women's liberation movement and the idea of fighting for freedom from control and from violence. Um, I just wanted to mention before we start, there will be some mention of abortion and reproductive rights and also some mention of violence against women, but um, not in too much detail or depth. But please do feel free to leave the meeting or mute uh, at any point if, if you need to do so. So um, for those of you that have been to uh, these events before, apologies, there'll be a little bit of repetition, but I just wanted to quickly mention that um, Unfinished Business Exhibition is, and this is an image from that exhibition, it's divided into three sections. So it's divided into body, mind and voice. And the section on body examines how women's bodies have been sites of debate and resistance. Um, how women have asserted control over their, their bodies and representation of their bodies um, and has been really central to the fight for women's rights. And, and 
this section is is kind of what we're looking at today uh, in the main. Mind um, is examining how women have fought to be recognised as intellectually equal to men, so fights for equality in education and work. Um, and voice uh, is about how women have found ways to make themselves heard and make themselves recognised. So just briefly, Norfolk Heritage Centre, we are at the top floor of the Millennium Library, and this is the lovely Millennium Library in the Forum in the centre of Norwich, uh, unfortunately currently closed. Um, the Heritage Centre, when you head up to the top floor of the library, looks something like this. Um, and we are the sort of lit sister site to the record office in the city centre. Um, Chris described us the other day as the Tesco Metro of the record office, which I quite like, the sort of one-stop shop in the city centre for uh, local history and heritage. So at the Heritage Centre, we collect anything um, published and printed to do with the history of Norfolk. Um, and that includes things like maps, books, obviously, photographs, but also um, ephemera. And ephemera refers to posters and leaflets, menus, tickets, receipts, all those kinds of bits of paper that are not designed necessarily to be kept, um, but actually do tell us a huge amount about social history. So the very tip of the iceberg uh, is our search room and behind the scenes is where we store product, most of our material. Um, and we do have about uh, half a million individual items in the collection. Um, the image on the left there is of our store, which is uh, temperature and humidity controlled. And that's where we keep our various collections. And on the right are the acid-free boxes um, in which we house our ephemera collection. And a lot of what we're gonna look at today is from that ephemera collection. So um, I'm just gonna briefly sort of touch on um, an overview of the women's liberation movement, but I would really recommend visiting the British Library Sisterhood and After project website um, if you want a sort of more comprehensive view. Um, and it's a brilliant resource and it's full of really, really good oral history interviews of women that were um, involved in a lot of the actions uh, of the time. Um, the Women's Liberation Movement sort of refers to the period from 1970s to 1990s um, in which women collectively were demanding um, for demanding equality and equal rights. Um, from February 1970, the first conference for the women's liberation movement was held at Ruskin College in Oxford. And this was the, the sort of starting point for when um, the women as a collective made seven demands. So um, at this initial conference, they made their first four demands and at later conferences, they made the, the um final three. The, the two demands that we're looking at in particular today are their third demand, um, which was made at Ruskin College in 1970, which was for free contraception and abortion on demand. And the seventh demand made by the movement, which is freedom for all women from intimidation by the threat or use of violence or sexual coercion, regardless of marital status, and an end to the laws, assumptions and institutions which perpetuate male dominance and aggression to women. And this demand was added um, at a conference in Birmingham in 1978. So 
this idea of um, asserting control and establishing autonomy over over their own bodies has been central to the history of women's rights for for a long time. Um, what the women's liberation movement did was transform the female body itself into a site of resistance and power. And for the first time, women were naming publicly types of damaging behaviour, which for a long time had been very, very private. So things like domestic violence, um, lack of reproductive rights, lack of decision making power over their own bodies. So I'm sure this lady is familiar to lots of you. Um, this is Dorothy Jewson. Um, in 1883, so predating Dorothy, the Cooperative Women's Guild was founded and developed into a campaigning group for um, maternity rights. And in 1915, the group published um, a paper called Maternity, Letters from Working Women. And this gave a really important insight into the conditions that working class women um, experienced pregnancy and childbirth in um, and how terrible these conditions were. Um, and social reformers at this time used these letters to support their campaigning. Um, and in 1918, the Maternity and Child Welfare Act was passed, and this expanded provision for maternity clinics and district midwives. So it's a big step forward. Um, however, despite this, there was still uh, a lack of consideration for the rights of working class um, or any women to choose to control um, pregnancy and control birth. Um, the sort of image of a downtrodden wife who's struggling to feed a family on low wages and burdened by fear of additional pregnancies um, and risking seeking illegal and dangerous abortions. This, this sort of image was a really galvanizing figure across campaigners of, of all political persuasions at the time. Um, in 1921, uh, Mary Stopes opened the first birth control clinic in England on Holloway Road in London. However, Stopes's motivation for supporting and promoting birth control um, was this eugenicist idea of racial uh, degeneration. And she believed in societal control of who should and who should not have children. Um, fortunately, at this time, there are many other advocates for birth control um, who were motivated uh, by the belief in, in freedom for women and working class empowerment rather than the sort of racist uh, ideals of um, people like Mary Stopes. So Dorothy Jewson comes into this. Um, she was a teacher, trade union organiser, uh, Labour Party politician, and also one of her party's first female members of parliament. Um, she also, in 1924, founded the Workers' Birth Control Group. Um, and she founded this with uh, Dora Russell, who was uh, another socialist feminist Labour politician. Um, and together they they ran this group. Jusen was the president and Russell was the secretary of the organisation, as you can see um, on the right. And the objectives of the workers' birth control group were to strengthen public opinion among workers as to the importance of birth control in any scheme of social progress. 
um, to bring within the reach of working people the best and most scientific information on birth control and to bring pressure to bear through Parliament and otherwise on the Ministry of Health to recognise birth control as an essential part of public health work and therefore to allow information to be given by the local health authorities at the maternity and child welfare centres. So together, I, I imagine uh, Dorothy and, and Dora were very persuasive women. Um, they, they attempted to persuade the Labour Party to adopt the policy of government funded welfare centres um, and to provide free birth control advice. Um, however, the leader of the Labour Party at this time, James Ramsay MacDonald, um, was really worried about the effect that this would have on Roman Catholic supporters of the Labour Party um, at the time. And unfortunately, he argued strongly against it at the 1926 party conference and managed to have the proposal defeated. Um, but despite this, from the 1930s, birth control clinics did become part of some local authorities, maternal and child welfare provision. So sort of jumping forward to the women's lib movement, um, Norwich Women's Centre. So this is the front cover of a newsletter for the Women's Centre in Norwich. The Women's Centre was formed in the 1970s um, by a group of women who realised that they were unfairly treated by society and, and not allowed equality in many areas of life. And um, they wanted to start a women's centre so that women could have a space of their own um, to provide information about their rights and also to give a home to groups that were campaigning um, for women's rights. And an important part of the, the service that um, the women's centre provided was pregnancy testing. And during the 70s and 80s, the Norwich Reproductive Rights Norwich Reproductive Rights Campaign met fortnightly at the Women's Centre um, and they were fighting for the rights of women to decide if and when they wanted children um, and also the right to comprehensive uh, NHS facilities and, and medical care. Um, they coordinated information about abortion and contraception and they were responsible for setting up the pregnancy testing facilities uh, at the Norwich Women's Centre. So access, as well as contraception, access to safe and legal abortion was also a really important issue to the women's liberation movement. Um, free contraception and abortion on demand was one of their first uh, initial demands. And um, the Abortion Act of 1967 allowed women in England, Wales and Scotland, importantly not Northern Ireland, to have a pregnancy termination at up to 28 weeks um, and this was later revised to 24 weeks in 1990, but only if two doctors agreed that the pregnancy harmed the women's uh, mental or physical health. But effectively, for the first time, this decriminalised abortion. Um, but almost, almost immediately, this act was threatened by constant amendments and alterations. So to combat this or to fight um, these attacks on the Abortion Act, the National Abortion Campaign, or NAC, was set up in 1975. Um, and this group initially started when um, the Working Women's Charter called a demonstration against the James White Abortion Amendment Bill in February 1975. Um, and this particular bill wanted to restrict the reasons why a woman could get an abortion and change which doctors were allowed to perform one. 
Um, and this demonstration was a was a success and the campaign was set up officially uh, the following month. And the group organized public demonstrations under the slogan, A Woman's Right to Choose. Um, in 1979, John Corrie, who was uh, an MP, introduced a bill um, against the Abortion Act uh, and he wanted to um, amend the act and reduce the time limit really drastically and also really restrict how um, a woman could get an abortion. And the National Abortion Campaign really rallied against this. And as you can see on the left there, there's a poster for a public meeting um, at the city library um, and on the right are two badges one which is handmade which I, I really like um, that were created um, to wear to a march for abortion rights. Um, NA, the NAC formed a subgroup called Campaign Against Corrie um, and actually they were able to defeat the Corrie bill which was eventually dropped. So Part of um, what women's liberation activists really wanted to do was empower women to say no. So no to unwanted pregnancy, but also no to harassment and violence, um, both in and out of the home. Um, for centuries prior to the women's liberation movement, um, domestic violence had been widespread and widely tolerated in Britain for a really long time. Um, and it was something that was rarely spoken of publicly um, so there was very little provision for women who were subjected to emotional, physical or sexual abuse in the home. Um, and the police often just refused to intervene or offer support to women. Um, in addition to this, married women were often not financially independent, often didn't work, didn't have their own um, in financial independence. And so they were often trapped in these dangerous relationships and housing situations and had absolutely no means of escaping those. Um, the Women's Liberation Movement inspired grassroots campaigns um, throughout the 70s, which called for acknowledgement that domestic violence was unacceptable and also demanded the provision of refuges for abused women. Um, in 1971, Erin Pizzi, set up the first centre for battered, for battered women, as, as they were called at the time, um, in Chiswick in London. And women could be referred to these shelters by social services and charities. Um, and two, only two years later, in 1973, Leeway was set up um, in Norwich by a group of volunteers and with the help of only a £200 startup grant from Norwich City Council. Um, the next year, so uh, 74, they were able to open Norwich's first women's refuge um, and actually one of the first refuges in the country. And the aim of the refuge was to provide a safe and supportive environment for women and also for their children um, who'd experienced uh, sexual, physical, mental or emotional abuse in their homes. And I'm just going to read an account from um, a lady who called herself Mary in uh, the Norwich Women's Centre newsletter from 1978. And Mary said, I arrived in Norwich with my children at 8pm one summer evening. I'd been in touch with the Samaritans and they'd given my eldest daughter the telephone number of the refuge. We rang in and were told to come straight away. We came into the refuge via the back door straight into the kitchen area. I remember thinking, oh God, what sort of place is it? Two of the mothers rushed about making tea and we were shown to our bedroom, which was spotlessly clean, bright and cheerful. Oh, how that cheered me up. 
On average, there are about five families here, although things can change dramatically overnight. My family share one room. We cook and clean communally. The main advantage of this particular refuge to me is the company of other women with the same problem. Norwich Refuse, uh, Refuge is exactly what it says in the dictionary, a refuge, a place of safety. I feel strong in myself now. My two months in Norwich have given me time to recoup my energy and I'm itching to be out in the world again without the burden of my husband. So I think Mary's account just shows how important these refuges were to just give women some space and some time and a, and a, and a safe place, which they just had never previously had. Um, and in the same year that the first refuge was opened in Norwich in 1974, the National Women's Aid Federation was established. And it was women's aid that coordinated shelters and support across the country. And they also lobbied for legal changes, such as the first Domestic Violence and Matrimonial Proceedings Bill in 1976. Um, and importantly, Leeway continues today um, as a specialist domestic abuse charity, uh, supporting adults, children and young people. Um, and I think it's just important to remember that while the women's liberation movement did help to change society's perceptions of domestic violence, the problem is still very much there um, and particularly as, as we've seen throughout the pandemic um, is still a huge issue. Um, if you are interested in the history of women's refuges, there's a brilliant heritage lottery project called You Can't Beat a Woman, which explores the history of women's refuges. And I'll send a link to that um, after the session today. So this image um, you probably recognise is outside the Golden Star pub um, on Colgate in Norwich. Um, in May 1977, a new Domestic Violence Act came into operation and this act aimed to provide legal protection for women who lived with violent partners. And um, before this bill, any woman who was applying for an injunction or a special court order against her partner had to be married to their partner um, and had to actually start divorce or separation proceedings before she could even get a court injunction. And this new act meant that it made it a lot easier for women to get an injunction against their abuser without being married to them or without having to go through divorce or separation proceedings. And it also um, helped women to gain uh, so to secure tenancy of, of their property. Um, and the same year that this act came into operation, 1977, um, this photo was taken and this shows members of the UEA's women's group and uh, Leeway Domestic Violence Refuge volunteers protesting outside the Golden Star pub on Colgate in Norwich after the introduction of a beer called the Wife Beater Bitter. And I just wanted to include this because I think it demonstrates that despite these legal changes and the pressure that the women's liberation movement were putting on um, it, it, wider societal attitudes to domestic violence at the time were still, uh, you know, still hadn't changed. And I haven't found further evidence of what happened to this beer, but I, I hope it was renamed or withdrawn from sale. Um, but when I was looking into this, um, I discovered that actually it wasn't until 2018 that the Society of Independent Brewers actually created guidelines against naming beers um, with sexist names or, and discriminatory beer advertising. And this was only prompted by the hashtag MeToo movement. 
Um, and it was only in 2019 that Camera, Campaign for Real Ale, actually banned beers that had sexist names or imagery from um, the beer festival, from the Great British Beer Festival. So I thought it was interesting um, just to kind of consider how little things have changed or how slowly things have changed. So the occupation of public space um, has long been a feminist protest tactic. And um, as we've just saw in, in the image of uh, people protesting outside the pub on Colgate, um, protest has been a really important tactic for the women's liberation movement. And the inspiration for the Reclaim the Night movement um, originated from the International Tribunal on Crimes Against Women, um, which was held in Brussels in 1976. And this was an international conference about violence against women. Um, and at the end of the conference, thousands of women spontaneously held a candlelit procession through the streets of Brussels, reclaiming that space after dark. Um, and it was after this that similar marches began cropping up across Europe and they particularly started in Britain um, in Leeds in 1977, um, partly in response to police telling women to stay out of public spaces after dark during the Yorkshire Ripper murders and the investigation into that. Um, in 1980, also in response to the Yorkshire Ripper murders, the radical feminist campaign Women Against Violence Against Women was established also in Leeds. Um, and just as an aside, there is there's a documentary currently on Netflix about the Yorkshire Ripper murders. Um, and it does give a really interesting sort of societal context of the way the world was for women at the time that these murders were taking place and how actually the police's response really galvanised the women's liberation movement to, to hold protests like Reclaim the Night and speak out against, um, you know, the curfews and things that were um, imposed on them. So... In 1989, which this poster is from, the Reclaim the Night movement was again resurrected um, in Norwich after, again, a police spokesperson claimed women shouldn't go out alone at night. Um, the march was coordinated by women from Norwich Women's Centre and it was attended by about 400 women. And I'm just going to read an account written by someone called Davina James Hanman, who was responsible for organising that protest. Let's have a glass of water. So Davina wrote, when a local police spokesperson made a statement saying that women who didn't want to get raped shouldn't go out alone at night, I felt a helpless fury so deep that it scared the living daylights out of me. So luckily I spoke to a friend, a friend with her own story who understood my rage at rapists being framed as the stranger, as an outsider in public and thus creating reasonable reasons why women should be denied the basic human right of freedom of movement. Who knew, like me, that this was just another way to control women and make sure that more of us were in the most dangerous places of all, not dark alleyways, but our own homes with the men we knew and trusted. And so a plan was born. We had both heard about the Reclaim the Night marches of the 1970s. Why not revive this idea? We set about asking others to help us organise the event and started designing posters, contacting local police, picking a day and a time, appointing stewards and so on. On the day itself, we were full of nervous energy. We'd advertised widely throughout the town and at the university campus, but we had no way of knowing whether anyone would actually turn up. 
It's 10.15pm when we arrive at the Women's Centre on Exchange Street. Norfolk Police have acquiesced to our demand that the march only be policed by police women. They've had to draft in some extras from Cambridge Police as they don't have enough women on their staff. There are 15 of them. There are, including me and my co-organiser, nine of us. We follow the time-honoured tradition of women with a dilemma and head for the toilets together. Shit, we wail at each other. This is going to be majorly embarrassing. We don our long-practised masks of seeming calm and unaffected and head out into the hallway of the Women's Centre. Five more women have arrived. Now we nearly outnumber the police officers. We tentatively open the front door to see if any more are on their way. Even now, 30 years later, the sight that greeted me brings a lump to my throat. Women are streaming towards the centre from every direction, laughing, determined, with banners and placards. In the end, there were about 400 of us. We had deliberately timed it to coincide with Friday night pub closing, a time when many of us pull our coats a little tighter, duck our heads a little lower, increase our speed and appearance of purpose. We wanted just one night of feeling free. As we joyfully, loudly marched down the streets, women were leaning out of their windows, cheering us on. We cheered back. Whatever we wear, wherever we go, yes means yes and no means no, we chanted. Three men from one central pub decided they could take us all on. Emerging uh, at the tail end of the march passed by, they jeered and lobbied uh, misogynistic epithets in our direction. Three women bringing up the rear of the march, each equipped with a fairly insubstantial placard, bounced it off their heads in protest. For a moment, it seemed as if everything would turn ugly. They took a pace or two forward menacingly. There was a pause, a moment when all breaths were held, and then the policewomen swept forward and arrested all three men for threatening behaviour. The whoops of the marchers were matched by the onlookers, men and women. We ran under that god-awful underpass on Erlen Road, not with the usual frisson of fear, but boldly. We rampaged. We were big. We owned the night. We were drunk on the power of not being afraid. I've never forgotten it. Never. It gave me strength for decades. I love that account of the march. It really sort of takes you there and shows you just how important and significant it was to those women. So the marches continue. Reclaim the Night hasn't gone away. Um, in a continued attempt to make public space safer for women. And I found this image from Katie John Wentz blog. And Katie John is a local feminist and LGBTQ plus activist. And it shows a Reclaim the Night March in Norwich uh, in 2018, which was led by UEA students. Um, and you could probably recognize they're on Prince of Wales Road, which is still known to be one of the most dangerous streets for women in the county and indeed in the country. So in 1985, um, a working group attached to the Norwich City Council's Equal Opportunities Committee was set up to look at violence against women and girls. Um, and this included representatives from Leeway, from Norwich Rape Crisis, from Norwich Women's Centre and also from the local hostel for young women, as well as from statutory and voluntary agencies. And this group was important because it provided a public forum for discussion and also um, a route for achieving real change for women. And this working group initially focused on the role of the police and the courts in relation to sexual violence. 
and um, they very quickly made gains. So within six months of starting, um, a small room had been decorated and furnished for women uh, at Norwich Police Station so that they could be interviewed by specially trained female officers if they'd uh, experienced violence. Um, the working group also sponsored the production of information leaflets and distributed them in the city. Um, a card was printed which had the refuge number on one side and the rape crisis line on the other. Um, and all police in Norfolk were asked to carry these cards. Training sessions were also organised for professionals um, as well as the public on violence towards women and girls. And this group demonstrated the ways in which activists from a number of grassroots feminist organisations successfully collaborated at this time and worked together with local council staff and with the police to create change and to develop new ways of supporting women who were experiencing violence. Um, and this photograph, again, you'll recognise where it is. It's on Gentleman's Walk uh, in Norwich and it shows an information um, stand which was set up in 1988 to provide this kind of advice and information for women. So jumping back uh, significantly to the suffrage movement, one of the ways in which women have literally fought back against oppression and violence has been through the learning of self-defence techniques and methods, including martial arts like jujitsu. And the origins of women's self-defence actually started alongside the fight for the right to vote um, during the first wave of women's rights movements in the early 20th century. And before I started researching this, I didn't realise this at all. I thought it was a kind of creation of the women's liberation movement, this idea of uh, teaching women self-defence techniques. But actually, um, these early feminists, these suffragettes and suffragists, um, wanted to raise awareness about the harassment and violence that women were facing on the street, um, at work and also in the home. Um, and they discovered a real sense of empowerment through training in things like boxing and jujitsu. And um, suffragette Edith Garrard famously was a jujitsu instructor um, to the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU. And Garrard's role was to um, train women who became protectors for Emmeline Pankhurst, and they were known as the bodyguard. So these women, um, I'd love to have seen them, they concealed clubs in their dresses um, and they learnt jujitsu and martial art uh, techniques to use against police officers. So I don't know much about martial arts, but apparently jujitsu is when you use your opponent's weight against them. So these women were sort of flipping police officers and um, disarming them uh, to protect uh, Emmeline Pankhurst and to prevent her arrest. Um, Women's self-defence, again, really regained popularity during the women's liberation movement uh, during the 1970s and, and onwards. Um, and women-only classes became really popular. So these were based on women's own experiences and on feminist theory on violence against women. And they included consciousness raising and assertiveness training. And this was to help women demonstrate strong body language and also uh, verbal self-defense. You can see on the poster on the left there for the Norman Center, uh, they offered activities for women such as bowls and something called slimnastics. Uh, badminton but then also self-defense um, and these classes importantly highlighted that most violence experienced by women 
um, was from men who um, the victim already knew. So they really worked to further deconstruct this myth about stranger danger. So the seventh demand of the movement, which we've been talking about today, um, freedom for all women from intimidation by threat or use of violence or sexual coercion, regardless of marital status. Um, the second part of this is an end to laws, assumptions and institutions which perpetuate male dominance and aggression to women. And women who were demanding freedom from violence and aggression looked more widely than their own individual lives and experiences. And many um, dedicated their lives to fighting for an end to global conflict and oppression. Um, and the women's peace movement was a really significant part of the wider peace movement of the 70s and 80s. And women were really at the forefront of this struggle. Um, most notably at the Women's Embrace the Base demonstration at Greenham Common. And the poster on the right there is for um, the coaches which left from Theatre Royal in Norwich taking women to Greenham Common for the bargain price of £5. Um, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, or CND, had been launched decades before um, in February 1958. And this was in response to a fear of nuclear conflict globally. Um, CND advocated for unilateral nuclear disarmament, calling for Britain to take the initiative and remove its own nuclear weapons. And it supported the goal of the global abolition of nuclear arms. Um, WND was the women's contingent of CND, uh, which you can see on the top of the post on the left there. Um, the women's peace movement activists enacted many nonviolent direct actions. So things like blockading military bases, setting up peace camps, um, but they also helped to raise awareness and spread information about the nuclear threat um, and staged events such as the poster on the left, which was a screening of the war game. And the war game was a 1965 British pseudo documentary film, which depicted a Soviet nuclear attack against Britain. Um, and interestingly, after its production, the BBC and the British government decided it was actually too distressing for audiences to see. And it was actually withdrawn before its first screening. And it was only uh, eventually televised 20 years later in 1985. Just have a drink of water. In 1973, <clears throat> the military general and dictator Augusto Pinochet um, had assumed power in Chile um, following a coup d'etat, overthrowing the leader, the current, the um, democratically elected leader, uh, President Salvador Allende. And because of this, um, Chile really suffered the effects of a very brutal military dictatorship. And this had a really devastating effect on the economy and uh, also on the greater part of the population, particularly working classes, uh, and in particular, working class women. Uh, they were affected by government policies um, which were designed to encourage a high birth rate um, by severely limiting their control over their own fertility. Um, there was a real lack of access to birth control and also uh, a lack of safe and legal abortion. And the military regime also really reinforced patriarchal control over um, women, including regulating their clothing, normalizing rape and sexual assault, and also violently resisting women who attempted to organize politically. 
Despite this, Chilean women organised themselves um, to demand the release of political detainees and also against food price increases. Um, and in 1986, 2,000 women marched on International Women's Day um, in Santiago demanding democracy, but they were attacked by police with tear gas. In June 1975, in Norwich at City Hall, the first meeting of the Norwich Committee for Chilean Refugees uh, was held. And this was attended by 22 representatives from local organisations. Um, and from this meeting, they formed a working committee, which was chaired by Joe Sterling, who was the sheriff uh, at the time. And this committee was uh, formed to support the reception of refugees into the city. And very quickly, they began to welcome um, Chilean refugee families to the city. Um, and Norwich Women's Centre sort of became a hub of the groups that were formed to offer support and solidarity um, to the Chilean women. They actively campaigned and organised events to increase public awareness um, and also raise funds for women in Latin America. Um, and in 1975, a hunger strike was organised um, at Norwich Cathedral in support of similar strikes which were taking place in Chile. Um, and the strike lasted for nine days. Uh, and on the final day, a demonstration was held outside the cathedral by the Norwich Women's Centre um, and also the Norwich Women's Liberation Group and the Women's Chilean Solidarity Group as well. And recently, a brilliant book has been written about um, Chilean refugees to Norwich, which I'll share a link to um, when I email after this event. And we've got copies in the library. So I just wanted to end with this image, and this is Norwich Rising. Um, Norwich Rising is an annual flash mob style festival of music, dance, drama and poetry. And the big demand that Norwich Rising uh, make is to end violence against women and girls. And it's part of a global campaign called One Billion Rising. Norwich Rising is organised by a collective of artists and activists, uh, including Eloise O'Hare, who's the main coordinator, and she's at the front right, dressed in pink. Um, and Eloise said about Norwich Rising, we know that Norwich Rising makes a difference. Survivors tell us their trauma is transformed by dancing with hundreds of people of all ages and abilities, taking back control of their bodies and using their energy to change the world and make it a safer place. So uh, these are just three of the books which I found really helpful when I was preparing these presentations, particularly the one on the right, which is the Unfinished Business uh, Exhibition Catalogue, um, which has loads of brilliant information and lovely images as well. And the book on the left uh, is the Sea Red Women's Workshop, who printed lots of posters for the women's liberation movement in the 70s and 80s. Um, we do, we've got copies of the middle and the right book um, at Norfolk Libraries obviously at the moment unfortunately we're not open um, but do check those out if you're interested in learning more.